And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be on this ro rotating globe. Remember, hyperdimensional physics, rotation, rotation, rotation. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. The program, for three hours at this time of night, in something like 193 countries where almost anything can happen, and it did, both this afternoon and then as a result this evening. Uh, we had planned another kind of show, kind of a hybrid, and because of the late scrub of the second attempt to launch Artemis One this afternoon at about 11.17, actually it was morning back east and earlier morning here, 11.17 this morning because of uh, interesting problems that we'll go into momentarily, they called a second scrub, meaning they are now recycling the count. They're all exhausted. They're not going to try to launch tomorrow. They're not going to try to launch Monday, uh, which was their next opportunity uh, after uh, t today. And they're going to try to launch Tuesday. In fact, it looks now like uh, they're going to have to roll the uh, entire Adam Artemis One stack, the rocket, and the spacecraft back to the VAB, the Vehicle Assembly Building, which is a very complicated procedure involving, you know, risk. Everything you do with these major engineering projects involves risk. And they're going to probably have to stay there at least a month because of the way the geometry of launching between Earth and Moon uh, takes place, as well as um, there's another launch coming up the replacement of Crew-4 in the space station on the uh, SpaceX Dragon spacecraft with Crew-5, number five, which is going up to the station, I think, the first week in October. And there are no real windows for launching Artemis to the moon at the end of uh, September. So we've got about a month now, give or take, before things develop again. So what we're going to do tonight, and uh, uh, what we've done is we've recycled our own folks. I was going to be joined by some members of the uh, Enterprise Mission Imaging Team. Well, it's just me, folks. It's just uh, you, you got me for the next three hours, because what I'm going to do is continue to show why this mission, this test mission, and the program that it is going to initiate, as well as the two unmanned missions currently en route are literally the missions after half a century which can blow the doors off the cover-up of what's really waiting on the moon. So without further ado, let us begin. Uh, if you are new to the show, we have something called Radio with Pictures, which means you follow along on your smartphone and you look at the images as I call out their numbers. And to find the images for tonight's show, you go to the uh, othersideofmidnight.com. That's our homepage. Click on tonight's banner, which says, under that very interesting female astronaut, who represents the first women who are going to be going to the moon in the um, follow-on to the Apollo program, named Artemis, who was the twin sister of the ancient Greek god Apollo. Um, look for that banner. It says, Make No Wine Before It's Time. Click on the banner that will take you to the guest page. 
and then right under the guest page it says uh, fast links to items click on my name and that takes you to my items further down the page and each has a nice big green number thank you Keith and so when I call out the numbers you simply go to that link in your phone or on your computer and you can follow along with the imagery and of course imagery is the core of our conversation tonight so beginning uh, number one the first link of course is the direct link to the Artemis blog over on uh, the NASA website there is a running engineering commentary on that blog so if you want to know what happened in NASA ease you go to that link and that uh, will take you right up to the present where they talk about uh, management, uh, mission management team meetings, where they're going to assess where they are in terms of the engineering. They're giving everybody, obviously, the uh, Labor Day weekend off because they really have earned it. And they'll all reconvene probably Monday afternoon because, like me, these folks are workaholics and they need to get this mission off to the moon. So they'll probably come in monday afternoon and start the analysis of the copious data that was acquired for the second time during the second launch attempt and then they will probably huddle for 24 hours and talk about options and then by tuesday tuesday afternoon tuesday evening they will present a full-up press conference and they will uh, demonstrate and show us what they plan to do as they say going forward but we can make certain assumptions uh, given the bizarre engineering problem which is really kind of weird and it almost reminds me of that scene in Jurassic Park uh, you know the one where you know this incredibly complicated park uh, to let dinosaurs reconstructed from their DNA roam free on an island somewhere off the coast of South America funded by this eccentric billionaire and everything is going fine except for the mad computer programmer in the corner of the control room and unbeknownst to the rest of the team in Jurassic Park the mad programmer has been bribed um, and between stuffing his face which is kind of funny in the film he inputs certain commands which sabotage all the multi-layered defense mechanisms including things like electrified fences and electric locks and triple gates and all that allowing the dinosaurs including the venomous and voracious velociraptors to break free and that of course is the uh, backbone of the entire plot it's been out there many many years I'm not giving anything away, but it's a fun film and you might want to go see it. Point is, I'm beginning to wonder, and I know this is probably out of bounds, but that's what we do on the show. I'm beginning to wonder, given the stakes, what's at stake for Artemis One to begin returning humans to the moon? I'm beginning to wonder if amongst their team, NASA may not have a mad programmer. The reason I say this is because they had a press conference late this evening, East Coast time, which, of course, I'm taping 24-7, so even though I was taking a very needed nap, uh, I was able to get up and do various things I need to do before the show, and then I was able to actually watch the briefing, so I'm kind of up on the NASA thinking. It turns out that the reason they had to scrub this morning 
is because during one part of the count, instead of the computer managing the sequence of valves and flow of hydrogen and chill down and all those things that have to be done to load the extraordinary, you know, hundreds of thousands of gallons of super, super cold liquid hydrogen and not quite so cold liquid oxygen. There's a part of the count and they call the pre-chill down where they basically flow a little liquid hydrogen through the pipes and through the systems in the rocket to kind of cool them down so when they open the valves totally, they don't shock things. Because when you take things from ambient, like 80 degrees Fahrenheit uh, on a sunny morning in Florida, down to 420 below zero, and if you do it too fast and too soon, you can break things, you know. You remember, you've all seen the demonstration where the guy is a magician on stage and he's got this, you know, vial or, or vat or, um, uh, you know, container of liquid nitrogen and he has a chrysanthemum and he taps it on the table and, of course, it's, it's live, it's organic, it's bendable, it's flexible. Then he dips it in the liquid nitrogen and he taps it on the table and it smashes into a million pieces. Well, that can happen to steel and tungsten and titanium and metals. So they gently cool the hardware, particularly the engines, at the base of this 322-foot-tall Artemis um, Saturn V clone uh, before they open the valves fully and dump the uh, liquid propellants into the tanks prior to the launch. And it was during that chill-down phase, which precedes what they call tanking, that something weird happened. As I said, in this part of the count, for a variety of reasons, they take manual control, and there's an operator sitting there basically tapping on keys or moving a mouse to make sure that things are going smoothly and they're not under control of the master computer. And it was during that critical phase where somehow a command was issued to open the wrong valve at the wrong time, which resulted in the hydrogen fill line, which has to go through the seals to get from the ground side into the rocket. There's what they call quick disconnects. They literally are eight inch pipes with hardware on the end, and when the rocket launches, they literally disconnect. You can see them back during the Apollo days disconnecting from the Saturn V as the engines are lit just before it lifts off and you begin to see what they call first motion. They're called quick disconnects, and they do exactly what the name Im implies. Anyway, so this part of the pre-chill they were under manual computer control. A guy, a gal, sitting there typing commands into the computer to do this, do that, open this, close that, you know, and somehow a wrong command manually got sent to the rocket. And it opened the wrong valve wide open at the wrong time and instead of the hydrogen fill line having a nominal pressure of something like 20 
pounds per square inch, the pressure shot up to 60 pounds per square inch, three times the specifications. And it was several seconds before, again, the manual operators looking at their screens caught it. The computer, of course, would have been much faster. And we're st I'm still not certain. The press is still not certain. The guys doing the briefing were not certain why they had to be a manual part of the count and it was not all under computer control. And presumably we'll find out next Tuesday when they do the follow-up briefing. Anyway, that line and that seal at the base of the stack, the Saturn, the, the Space Launch System Artemis One stack, which is what a rocket with its payload is called, a stack, it experienced three times the internal pressure it was designed for. And, you know, th those of us outside, I mean, they're being very, very, very conservative. Some reporters said, well, could that have caused the damage to the seal? And Mike Serafino, who was the uh, mission manager, said, well, we don't know that yet, but come on. That's obviously what happened. Now, was it a, a, just a dumb accident? Was it just because someone, you know, we've all been working on computers and you hit the wrong key. Was this just a horrible error? Or was there a Jurassic Park mad programmer who sent deliberately the wrong command, knowing it would destroy the seal knowing they could not pressurize that line, knowing that exceeded the safety limits, because you don't want a lot of gaseous hydrogen mixed in the atmosphere around the base of the rocket with oxygen. Bad things happen. Think Hindenburg. So they had to call off the count. They had to scrub the uh, launch attempt. That one little thing, which I was waiting to hear, something under manual control. So... Was this merely bad luck, bad timing, an error, something dumb and stupid? I mean, we all do those things. Or does NASA have in its midst a saboteur? And if they do, has anybody even thought about this? See, this goes back to the idea that it's not a military program. It's a civilian program. It's designed to look at rocks and craters and radiation. What is possibly encumbering national security having to do with rocks, craters, and radiation on the moon? I mean, it's not like a box of, uh, you know, thousands, 11,000 pages of top secret files at Mar-a-Lago. This, by every standard, has no national security importance. Therefore, who is even looking for a potential saboteur deep in the ranks. And I'm hoping someone's listening because guys, I think it's about time you kind of looked around and you know, this is the second time that something weird has happened in trying to get this sucker off the ground. Uh, what is it they say? One is an event, two is a coincidence, and three is a trend. Well, um, they're gonna try again in a month after they roll back, and they're really going to have to roll back because for a variety of reasons they can't fix the hardware. They can't even get in there because this stuff is still super cold. It takes a long time, even in Florida weather, to warm things up to 80 degrees, what they call the ambient, meaning the average outside air temperature. Uh, when you've cooled it down with hundreds of thousands of gallons of super cold liquid hydrogen. 
Remember, one of my friends many, many years ago was the guy who literally tamed liquid hydrogen for the American space program. And by metonymy for the Soviets and the Japanese and the Chinese, in other words, everybody kind of shares this engineering eventually, becomes public domain. Um, his name was Kraft Ericke, and he was the guy who designed, when he was a General Dynamics, the hydrogen fueling and rocket system for the Centaur upper stage rocket back in the 1960s. So NASA has been working with incredibly difficult engineering surrounding any fluid at close to absolute zero. I mean, really. Uh, somebody wrote a book, or they, maybe they talked about writing a book, and they were going to call it The Bugs That Live at Minus 420 Fahrenheit because there are all kinds of engineering gremlins that can happen when you're dealing with super, super, super cold fluids just degrees above absolute zero the coldest thermodynamic temperature in the universe under the laws of physics. So, uh, for all these reasons, they had to stop the count, drain the rocket so it's safe, let it warm up. It's going to take probably 24 to 36 hours to warm back up to, you know, Florida temperatures. And then they will have access to the panels of where the quick disconnect pipes and engineering uh, mechanisms are that connect the ground side, the launch uh, uh, support system, with the fuel loading um, pipes in the rocket itself, and that's where they will look and treat, try to see if there is some kind of mechanical problem. If that overpressure basically bent or warped the seal, these are, you know, they're supposed to be friable, they're supposed to be, you know, pliable, not friable, pliable, meaning they bend, they're flexible. But when you cool these things down, no matter what kind of rubber you're using, um, it becomes as rigid as steel. So it doesn't take much. Uh, I mean, 60 pounds of overpressure when it's rated for 20. Um, they probably cause cracks. And there was a very large leak every time. They tried three or four times to seat it, meaning do funny things with pressures that would make it kind of mate in its little receptacle recess. Nothing worked, so they have to go in mechanically, and that requires days of bringing it back up to normal temps. Engineers going out to the pad, you know, wrenches, removing covers, putting up some kind of a uh, little containment box around it because you don't want ambient air with 20% oxygen uh, mixing with hydrogen fumes that could still be you know, in, in the tank, which has been sealed for several days when they're going to do all this. Anyway, a lot of detail, um, but it's necessary to kind of have the proper background. Now, there are some folks, it's amazing how people on the internet, when they're anonymous, can be really, 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 really rude and wrong. Because there's so many people who, after only two attempts, are saying, oh, NASA couldn't, you know, punch its way out of a wet paper bag. No, not really, folks. This is the best engineering people on the planet. And they're dealing with a technology which is derived heritage from shuttle by design. There's, there's new equipment, there's new hardware, but it's a 30, 40 year old design based around the shuttle design, which used liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen in the main engines. And of course we're reusing for the first two or three missions in the Artemis program, 
uh, some of the same engines that actually flew into space on the shuttle when it was out in operation. So they are well-known, well-worn in. Uh, things have been replaced like seals and gaskets and when needed bearings and all that. But they're basically really, really well-known engineering. So why are they having these problems? I think there needs to be someone paying attention to the possibility Again, not a certainty, but a possibility, given what's at stake to a saboteur, just like Jurassic Park. And we will know, I'm sure, if something like that is found uh, in, in due course. Okay, moving on. Item number two. This is the proposed Artemis flight plan. Um, it uh, basically is not your uh, grandmother's Apollo three-day trip to the moon. As you can see, it's got this long looping trajectory. Uh, it takes them like a week to get there. That's to save fuel and stretch the consumables because they really want to stress all aspects of the spacecraft and the rocket and the upper stage and all this. So even though the uh, Ryan spacecraft and service module are rated for 21 days with people on board, they're going to have a six week mission uh, 42 days, give or take, uh, for Artemis 1. So they overstress every aspect of the engineering when there are not people at risk. That's why you have an unmanned test flight or unpersoned test flight. Um, it wouldn't be NASA unless, of course, there was a hidden ritual, which means you want to go to item number three, um, uh, okay, well, it says 3A. Anyway, it follows two, 3A. So this is a close-up of the uh, right-hand portion of the graph in item number two. This shows a schematic of the orbit. What immediately caught my eye is the size of the orbit on Artemis 1 at this farthest point, because it's going to be a very long looping orbit around the moon um, that will take them... Uh, over a week to go around once, as opposed to two hours for Apollo. So seven days, seven tetrahedral days, and at the high point, or the apogee, they will be 39,000 miles from the center of the moon. 39,000, gosh, twice 19.5. See why I'm always suspicious of NASA? Because there's agendas, there's engineering, and then there's the ritual. Who is determining the ritual and to what end? Now, as I said uh, last Sunday, which is this is kind of a reprise of some of the things I went through last Sunday, when Artemis 1 was initially going to launch, it would be joining two other unmanned missions, both of which are separately going to the moon. One is called Capstone. The other is called Denuri. And that should be spelled with an A, not an E. Uh, that's a public note to Keith. My mistake, my bad. Anyway, uh, and there should be commas between Capstone and Denuri and Artemis. Anyway, um, the three missions were going to be simultaneously en route to the moon. Now that Artemis 1 has been delayed a month, um, the Capstone mission is going to get to the moon on November 13th, taking, as you can see, this very long, looping, low-energy trajectory. And the Denuri mission, 
which is the South Koreans' unmanned spacecraft, uh, launched uh, about three weeks ago, I think now. It will not get to the moon until December 17th. So if the launch of Artemis is sometime, the third attempt is sometime in mid-October, and it's a six-week mission, give or take, it means that Artemis 1 will be orbiting the moon at the same time that the capstone mission is going into this very bizarre, very elongated uh, rectilinear retrograde orbit, which is designed to test out the orbit for the upcoming Gateway space station, which will become a kind of a, a, a way station for missions, human missions, following uh, Artemis 3 to and from the South Pole of the Moon. In fact, if they rendezvous with Gateway and then use the lander, which will be kind of permanently parked as a second spacecraft, like a taxi, going from the Gateway orbit down to the surface, they literally, from that Gateway orbit, will be able to reach every single area on the Moon. No area, no region, no site, no interesting thing down there will be inaccessible to the ultimate mature Artemis overall mission plan because of Gateway. Well, for Gateway to work, they have to test the orbit with this unmanned 55-pound spacecraft called Capstone. And that will be en route, arriving at the moon, being inserted into orbit now, while Artemis 1, presuming it launches successfully in mid-October, is toward the end of its six weeks orbiting the moon. So we will have two missions going to the moon, arriving uh, almost simultaneously. And that opens up interesting, very interesting possibilities. Okay, item number 4A. That is the Capstone spacecraft, little uh, CubeSat, weighs 55 pounds. It's 12, it's called a 12U, meaning 12 units of this modular unmanned uh, technology. 4B is the Danuri, spelled correctly there, uh, artwork showing the South um, uh, Korean spacecraft, which as I said, will be inserted into lunar orbit about a month after Capstone. And um, it, it basically is, uh, uh, all going to happen, at least for Capstone and Artemis 1, simultaneously, which of course opens up all kinds of intriguing possibilities. Because as I've said endlessly, and I will say endlessly, these missions, given that they are now equipped with state-of-the-art imaging technology, stunningly uh, precise and sensitive um, uh, digital electronic cameras capable of seeing essentially in the dark. Well, if these spacecraft uh, perform as, as designed, they will in fact be able to uh, spot anything unusual on the lunar surface up to and including the ancient artifacts that we know are waiting for humankind. And in the most benign interpretation of these inexplicable launch delays, there might be a reason why someone, for some reason, wants both missions, Artemis 1 and Capstone, 
to be orbiting the moon simultaneously in November. So what you want to do is you want to kind of hold that thought. You're on the other side of midnight. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to swing in to the meat of what there is waiting on the moon that someone either wants doubly verified or flipping this upside down, someone does not want revealed. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. In times long past, this planet was the home of a mighty and noble race of beings, which called themselves the Krell. Ethically, as well as technologically, they were a million years ahead of humankind. For in unlocking the mysteries of nature, they had conquered even their baser selves. And when in the course of eons they had abolished sickness and insanity and crime and all injustice, they turned, still with high benevolence, outward toward space. Long before the dawn of man's history, they had walked our earth and brought back many biological specimens. I see. That explains the tiger and the deer. The heights they had reached. But then, seemingly on the threshold of some supreme accomplishment, which was to have crowned their entire history, this all but divine race perished in a single night. In the 2,000 centuries since that unexplained catastrophe, even their cloud-piercing towers of, of glass and porcelain and adamantine steel have crumbled back into the soil of Altair IV, and nothing, absolutely nothing, remains above ground. What were they like? No record of their physical nature has survived, except perhaps in the form of this uh, characteristic arch. I suggest you consider it in comparison to one of our functionally designed human doorways. That recording was made by Krell musicians a half a million years ago. Now, if you will follow me, I will show you some of their other remaining artifacts. That is Dr. Morbius, um, actually uh, uh, Walter Pigeon, with a very famous peroration from one of my favorite films, which is Forbidden Planet. Because as I've said many times on the show, and someday we're going to do an entire program where we take apart, where we deconstruct the movie Forbidden Planet step by step. 
Forbidden Planet is a kind of a cautionary tale in terms of what we're now facing with going back to the moon. In other words, I believe based on something like 20 or 30 years of research and a whole bunch of colleagues all over the world who have independently looked at this data, some of which you're going to be hearing when we bring the team back together tomorrow night, we are looking at such extraordinary and awesome works of engineering that it's essentially like we are looking at the works of the long lost Krell. The staging, the scope, the scale of engineering, the sheer capacity to create a dome around an entire planet, which is, you know, tens of miles high and covers an area uh, of more than uh, North and South America combined. I am sure that when the NASA folks 50 plus years ago first looked at the imaging and data that they got back, that they, they, they basically balked. They could not believe what they were seeing and the cover-up and the silence for the last half century in terms of what is there, what is waiting for Artemis to finally reveal to all humankind, waiting there for all of us on the moon, basically was put on standby because no one, certainly at any governmental level, even began to, to uh, think about how to properly present this staggering, stunning, awesome engineering reality to humankind. I mean, we literally, uh, 50 years ago, did not have the, the background, the perspective, the decades long of a culturization, as Brookings called for, of umpteen movies regarding starships and space flight and federations and aliens and ETs and interactions and fabulous, extraordinary works of engineering. Well, we're going to find out whether over 50 years the human race, particularly Americans, have gained any kind of perspective because what is waiting when Artemis and these two other unmanned missions finally reach the moon with their state-of-the-art, digital, incredibly high-resolution and latitude color imaging cameras is nothing less than confronting face-to-face -face the wonders of the Krell. Which brings me to item number five. It turns out, and this is a very weird story, it turns out that <clears throat> about uh, nine years ago, eight, nine years ago, I was leaked extraordinary film from a super top secret, you know, can you say top secret compartmentalized special access program called Project Corona. Someone came up to me at a speech that I had given at one of Stephen Greer's events in Arizona, where we had driven down, Robin and Morrell and I had driven down. And of course, Morrell thought that everybody, all the hundreds of conferees were convened uh, to see her. Uh, she, was, she was like that, she loved audiences. Anyway, after my speech, um, a guy kind of came up to the stage and he said, you know, the fatal words, can we talk? So we went over into a corner and everybody else is milling around and they're going to the bar and there's a kind of, I, I guess it was late in the afternoon, there was a dinner break and then we would reconvene. So we basically were over against the corner and he says, I'm from Houston and I have a whole roll of film from Project Corona. Would you 
like to have it. And I looked at him and I thought to myself, is this guy for real? Because, you know, when you're, when you're a public person, a lot of folks come up to you and they, they tell you or they ask you very strange things. So it turned out it was for real. Um, without going into a long, complicated peroration as to what happened, how I briefly had access to the film, I was able to verify that it contained extraordinary images of the moon, which I found astonishing because Corona was supposed to be a program, uh, the first spy satellite program looking down on the Soviet Union to see if there indeed was a missile gap, if the Russians were going to launch a you know secret nuclear attack day after tomorrow, that kind of thing. And the idea that according to the film that I was able to briefly see, an entire roll of hundreds and hundreds of frames were all devoted not to a missile base, not to Russian airfields, not to anything of national security, but looking across the quarter million miles from low Earth orbit at the moon and frame after frame after frame of the moon. I mean, to me, it was mind-boggling and incredibly revealing all at the same time. And then weird things happened. And aside from a few frames of this priceless film, which I presented last Sunday night, and I'm going to present them again tonight briefly so that you can see the context of what we're talking about, the actual once top, top secret special access Project Corona program film, which briefly fell into my lap, was whisked away and never to return. But I do have a few frames, including the most important ones. So let's go to item number six. When you're talking about photographing the moon, looking for ruins, remember the moon, even though it's smaller than the Earth, about a quarter of the size, its total surface area, front and back, is equivalent to North and South America combined. And that's what this uh, illustration uh, in item number six is showing us. Can you imagine, even with a satellite, uh, looking for something specific in an area the size of the United States portion of the North American continent or North and South America together? But that's what apparently had happened, and I was incredibly fortunate to be leaked a portion of this film. Well, obviously what had to have happened for this to all come true is what you see in item number seven. If you look at number seven, uh, there on the right is a cutaway of the Corona spacecraft, which basically was a super flying spatial uh, film camera and photographic laboratory combined. And what they would do is they would take pictures with a special set of cameras, two cameras for stereo, uh, and the, the amount of film that they exposed over the period of each mission was about a month. So they exposed like a, over a mile, 5,000 plus feet of film, which was unwound from a supply reel went through the cameras, was wound up in a take-up reel, sealed in a capsule, and then ejected and physically re-entered uh, the Earth's atmosphere and was picked up by a flying Air Force uh, aircraft over the Pacific on a kind of a trapeze, snagged in midair, 
the capsule brought to a uh, CIA Air Force base uh, ground station. The film was developed. It was then flown to Langley and a whole bunch of photo interpreters with, you know, magnifying glasses and loops put it on light tables and looked avidly at every square inch looking ostensibly in the Corona program for all the secret Soviet missile bases and airfields and other uh, appurtenances of their military industrial complex. Remember, this was at the height of the Cold War where Khrushchev had turned down Eisenhower's proposal for what he called open skies, which would have had aircraft flying over both nations. So what we did, what Eisenhower did is opt for the uh, CIA's plan Project Corona instead. Okay, item number eight. This is a frame of the film. This is directly from the negative. A positive has been made, and it was that positive that I was able to get hold of, one of the frames. On the right, you see a series of dials next to the image of the moon, a nice gibbous moon. On the left, you see some writing. Uh, If you look at number nine, this is where things get really weird. Because I said last weekend, it's obvious someone wanted me to have this copy of this film because they wrote my name on it. Literally sitting there in Houston waiting for me to come and pick it up. Now, if you go back to item eight, you'll see in those dials, the second one from the top, when you enlarge it, which is item number 10, you can see that it's a little label uh, of equipment inside the spacecraft, which with every frame, the label is also simultaneously imaged on the same photograph. And you see uh, some words, some letters rather, and numbers, SO. 226. Well, I instantly, when I saw this, and the number below it, 8166, that's when this mission flew. August, August 1st of 1966, when the uh, Corona program was launched back in 1959. So this is now maturing technology. Three years after President Kennedy uh, has been, has died, Uh, had been assassinated. And the program went on from 59 to 1972 through a series of additional, more advanced spacecraft. But Corona, for its entire life, did not depend on electronically transmitting uh, images from orbit. They literally kept dropping canisters of film, picking up the film, taking it to the lab, developing it, and then scanning the developed film with human photographic interpreters at CIA headquarters at Langley and other places. So it's the best resolution uh, from orbit that we had up until the era of modern digital imaging. I mean, you really can't beat film for resolution even now. So you look at this label, it says SO226. I recognize that as a film type because Way back then, when this all went down, like nine years ago or so, uh, I didn't really understand the photographs and the political soap opera surrounding me never being able to get access to the entire roll of film, which I desperately wanted because I wanted to see how many images they took and if they took them through various phases of the moon's illumination, because that will play into, on a major part, what we see on the film. Sun angle is important. 
So it wasn't until relatively recently, the last couple of months, that I, in preparing for these shows around the Artemis One launch, had a chance to go in and realize that that label was telling me about the film type. So now you go to number 11. If you look up on the internet, you can find the sensitivity curves and the spectral range of Kodak SO, that's Special Order Film 226. It turns out it's an infrared ultraviolet film, meaning if you expose the film with a filter uh, between the lens and the film in the camera, you can either look at the infrared, which is kind of like extended color. It's not thermal. It's not heat. It just is the long, long ultra red end of the spectrum out to about 900 angstroms if you look at the uh, uh, graph underneath the, the curves. Whereas in the short range, um, the film is sensitive. In fact, very sensitive. Look at the height of the curve all the way out to something like 250 angstroms, uh, which is very, very short beyond the violet range. Now, why is that important? Because anything short of around 300 angstroms, again, nanometers and angstroms are the same. An angstrom is a billionth of a meter, a nanometer. Nano is billionth, okay? So what, what they had is on board a film that in the vacuum of space above the atmosphere, because the atmosphere does not transmit ultraviolet beyond around 300 angstroms or 300 nanometers. So they had a whole region in the far ultraviolet uh, on this scale, which had never been explored before. And they obviously uh, put quartz lenses in the spacecraft that was taking these images. Why quartz? Because ordinary glass stops ultraviolet, whereas quartz transmits it seamlessly and losslessly. So all you would do is to change the lenses in the standard Project Corona camera. You roll the spacecraft. So instead of looking down at the Soviets, it was looking up uh, like in... uh, uh, image number seven across the quarter million miles to the moon and you take a lot of pictures and according to my my leaker the entire roll hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of frames I don't really know how long the roll was because I never physically had my hands on it this was done kind of by remote control at some point but there were at least several hundred frames and maybe several thousand every one of them taken of the moon, not one frame of a Soviet missile base down below. So item number 12, this is an actual side-by-side comparison of the uh, uh, Corona ultraviolet imagery. How do you get ultraviolet images of the moon? Simple, you put a infrared filter in the camera so it doesn't see the infrared part of the spectrum. It only sees the ultraviolet and then you just take pictures. And what you can see, if you look carefully, and of course each of these, you can blow them up by simply clicking on them. If you look carefully, side by side, and you have to scan back and forth because they're very large, the same features you see on the moon taken from the ground in visible light on the right are not the same features you see on the ground on the moon through the ultraviolet corona image taken on the left. There are differences. I mean, they're 
there's haze, there's obscuration. It looks like there's a cloudy day on the moon, which of course is impossible. So what's really going on? Obviously, something is intervening between the camera in low Earth orbit across the vacuum of space and the surface of the moon. What is that something? That is the globe-wide, lunar-wide, moon-wide, incredibly Krell-like, super-advanced, ancient lunar dome. And it covers, to more or less degree, depending upon damage and holes and uh, light attenuation, it covers, from the data we now have, the entire moon. It's not just one dome over a crater. It's literally like you wrap saran wrap around a beach ball. It covers to the height of several tens of miles. And you can see that in the imagery and do the scaling. It covers the entire moon. Now, can you imagine the CIA when they looked at this? First of all, why did they look at this? Why was an agency tasked to after World War II, keep us safe from all enemies, foreign, particularly the, uh, the communists, you know, the, the red menace, the Soviets, why were they incredibly using one of these very special, very expensive, super top secret missions, at least one, I think it was more than one, but at least one to look not down at the earth, not at a national defense problem, but at the moon. Did they have other information that the real ultimate threat to the United States of America is not then the Soviets or now the Russians or the Chinese or the Iranians or the Saudis or any of the other you know list of bad guys? Remember the evil list that uh, George Bush created of the, of the evil empires? Um, what if the CIA was working off some kind of intelligence that the real potential threat to the United States, to the citizens of America, to ultimately all the denizens of planet Earth was not from other nations squabbling amongst each other, even with nuclear weapons. In fact, it would come from outer space and it may, in fact, come from the moon. I mean, remember what the CIA was created to do, to be an early warning system against threats, foreign threats to the uh, well-being of American citizens. So if you look at number 13, this is merely a comparison between the uh, corona ultraviolet image of the lunar dome, showing that well-known features like Plato, which you can see easily on the right uh, with comparisons uh, from Earth-based telescopes, in the ultraviolet shot in space, where it should be crystal clear, because there are no clouds between low Earth orbit and the moon. Instead, there are incredible obscurations. Obviously, we're dealing with some material substance, the glass in this model of the domes, blocking a clear view of surface detail, which is easily visible in longer wavelength illumination. Why? Because as I've said for decades now, and in part it's based on this physics, um, the physics of optics are that if you have a material 
and it's pulverized into little, little teeny tiny pieces that are on the order of the wavelength of light that you're trying to look at the object with. In this case, something on the order of two to three hundred angstroms, like incredibly ground up bits of glass with the consistency of cigarette smoke hanging in a matrix after being pounded by micrometeorite abrasion for unknown millions of years. There's not a lot of this dome left, but there's enough to make itself visible if, if you look in the right short wavelength part of the spectrum. So again, how did the CIA know to do all this? Did they have some kind of intelligence up to including maybe secret sacred documents preserved from thousands or maybe depending upon who passed what to whom through millions of unknown years of human history prior to the uh, primitive times of the let's say the neolithic speculation but we can find out someday if we find the libraries on the moon anyway Item number 14, um, my, my question about how long they did this was answered by the scan of number 14, because as you can see in number 13 or in number 12, the image on the left, that's an almost full moon. That's a gibbous moon, as we call it. But the image on the, on the bottom, 14 and then 15, that's obviously a first quarter moon, which means the spacecraft, Corona, was taking pictures for at least a month and a half until the moon got around again to first quarter because it takes about a month for the moon to go through all its phases. So it meant that during the entire operational life of this particular Corona mission, if I can believe my source, the leaker in Houston, and he said the entire film was taken up with nothing but lunar images, they spent an entire month plus photographing across space, not the Earth, not the Russian missile silos, but the moon. Why? Because different phase angles between the Earth and the moon and the sun create different sun angle illumination of the dome. And that in turn, combined with the wavelength in which you're taking the pictures, allows you to calculate the size of the surviving fragments of glass, the tiny little particles making up the remnant ancient, very holy, and I use that term uh, advisedly, ancient lunar dome. And so you can basically gauge the physics of what has survived over millions of years by taking pictures at more than one lunar phase, even from the Earth. And that's what you see in 15. You see my effort to kind of penetrate the haze, do some enhancement, um, and you can see their regions, particularly down around the south lunar pole, which is at the bottom of the, of the disk, where there is actually uh, apparently geometric fragments, larger fragments in a coherent matrix form. You can actually see the grid pattern if you really zoom in, of denser portions of the still surviving dome. So the dome over the entire 15 million square miles of lunar surface 
is not the same density or in the same state of degradation all over the moon. And you can see this illustrated in number 16, where there's a schematic showing that when you look from the Earth to the uh, center of the lunar disk, you're looking straight down through this uh, purported dome, which is the shortest path length. But when you're looking at the edge, what they call the lunar limb, at the horizon, circular horizon, all around the edge of the moon, you're looking through the greatest optical path of surviving dome material, so there's more crud in the way scattering sunlight, and it will show up as it does in photograph after photograph after photograph, as you'll see shortly. It shows up as a bright ring, a lit, illuminated band completely surrounding the moon, like a wedding ring surrounding something placed inside. And it's that ring around the moon, hugging the moon's surface, extending from the surface we can see up several tens of miles with decreasing density. And oh, it comes in layers. We now know from the photography I've been able to identify, both from NASA, from Apollo, from talented amateurs who've done the photographs from Earth and have no idea what they've been photographing. Again, if you don't have the context and you see something in a photo, you'll probably just assume that you don't know enough to know what it is and you'll move on. Well, between the time of Corona and these photographs, in 2009, another mission, uh, this time a NASA mission, an unmanned mission, went to the moon. This was in October of 2009. It was a combined mission to smash an upper stage Centaur rocket fueled by liquid hydrogen developed by my friend uh, Kraft Ericke. The same technology being used in Artemis this morning, just decades down the road. And an upper spacecraft attached to it called the Shepherding spacecraft. And the idea was that when they got close to the moon, the two spacecraft would decouple the Centaur would smash into the moon at something like 5,000 miles an hour, while the Shepard spacecraft, interesting name, Shepard, trailing several hundred miles behind by that time, would be taking photographs and data and would examine the enormous cloud of material kicked up by the high energy explosion of smashing an upper rocket stage at several thousand miles an hour on the moon. And if you look at item number 18, well, we're going to wait because, well, we're at the top of the hour. I'm my only guest this morning. We're talking about why Artemis may be sabotaged, why someone really doesn't want the Artemis manned flights return to the moon and are doing some kind of bizarre delaying action, or in the alternative, why they want the prototype Artemis spacecraft, which will someday in a couple of years carry humans, and the unmanned capstone mission to be there simultaneously. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>